Welcome to Data Dialogues from Equifax, a podcast about how data-driven insights can power smarter business decisions. Welcome to another episode of Data Dialogues. I'm Jeff Duggar, your host today. I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Nikhil Paradkar, Assistant Professor in Finance at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. Today, we're going to talk with Nikhil about some consumer finance research that may help indicate where consumer finance is headed. He has also conducted some very interesting research on corporate buzzwords, innovation, and company earnings calls. I can't wait to dive into that. Welcome, Nikhil, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nikhil, your focus area at UGA's Terry College of Business spans financial intermediation, fintech, household finance, and machine learning. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work? Yes, of course. Uh, Very broadly, my research interests lie at the intersection of banking and household finance. Now, specifically, I investigate how changes in the financial sector, owing either to regulation, technological advancements, or crises, impact the availability of credit to households. More recently, I've also explored applying machine learning techniques to finance research. So, Nikhil, you mentioned regulation. Let's talk about some of your research you recently presented to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, on bank funding shocks. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. Yes, uh, I presented this study to the CFPB um, in December 2019. So in this study, my co-authors and I explore how bank banks respond to liquidity shocks by adjusting their supply of credit in consumer credit card, uh, consumer credit card markets. Now, specifically, about a decade ago, uninsured short-term wholesale funding was an extremely important source of funding for banks. However, this funding source just suddenly dried up in 2008. This dry up actually ended up being quite a serious shock to bank liqui- liquidity mainly because banks were unable to substitute away from short-term wholesale funding. So specifically what we found is that banks ended up responding to this liquidity shock by cutting back on credit limits issued on consumer credit cards. Now, interestingly, the transmission of the shock to consumers was not uniform. The largest credit limits cuts, in percentage terms, were levied on consumers that had relatively poor credit fundamentals basically individuals with lower credit scores or higher credit utilization. Importantly, these larger limit cuts also translated into reduced credit card balances. For example, if you take consumers with very high credit scores or very low utilization ratios before this liquidity shock, they really did not reduce their credit card borrowing when they experienced a reduction in credit limits. However, if you took consumers with low credit scores and high utilization ratios before the shock, these people experienced a large reduction in credit limits. And for these people, every dollar reduction in credit card limits translated up to almost a 71 cent decline in credit card borrowing. So one thing I would imagine is that this could have an impact on a person's credit score if their credit limit uh, is dropped. Uh, Did you see that? So that's actually a hypothesis that we were testing. We did expect this to have a negative impact on consumers' credit scores. However, what we did find is that, well, this is known in industry, is that a consumer's credit utilization ratio plays a significant role in determining credit scores. Uh, but for the people that, reduced, that experienced large reductions in credit limits, they also reduced their balances. Um, and as a result, their utilization ratio 
remained unchanged and the effect on their credit score was generally very small. Um, if anything, the people that experienced a reduction in credit scores were people that were uh, extremely high credit score, uh, that had extremely high credit scores uh, before as well. Uh, they experienced a reduction of one to two points, but for them, that reduction did not matter. However, an interesting thing we did find is that for the people that experienced a negative effect in terms of credit limits and subsequently their credit card balances, was that these negative effects appeared to persist for quite a long time. Uh, what my co-authors and I found that was rather surprising is that consumers uh, that were more exposed to their bank's liquidity shocks um, had relatively lower credit card balances for up to 10 years after the initial pass-through of the funding shock to them. So I imagine if that happens in a financial crisis, that would in turn have some impact on the financial recovery since people are spending less. Exactly. So that's the main um, interesting takeaway from this paper, which was that the largest reduction in credit limits uh, fell on individuals that had the highest marginal propensity to borrow. Um, and as a result, you know, it, it did uh, reduce credit card borrowing. Now, that being said, the caveat here is that we are specifically studying one channel, uh, which is the credit card channel. So as a result, we cannot really say much when it comes to uh, conspicuous consumption, uh, specifically consumption of the type of autos. But what we can talk about is, you know, everyday consumption, such as such as groceries, um, paying for utilities, paying for clothing, etc. Everyday consumption was uh, was maybe negatively impacted because of the pass-through of the shock. And I would imagine for our listeners who may not be familiar with why banks may cut back on the amount of funds they make available for people on the revolving accounts, is that they have to maintain a certain level of reserves uh, to cover deposits, etc. cetera. Uh, that's right. Uh, essentially, in this case, what banks were trying to do was there was you know, a crisis going on in 2008, and they were simply trying to reduce their risk exposure. And the one way to do that is to maybe limit the supply of credit to the riskiest population, who um, also happen to be the people that have the highest marginal propensity to borrow. So taking all this together, how was this work received by the CFPB and what was their particular interest in it? So the particular interest comes from the fact that um, there was a unique data advantage um, that we had, specifically... There were hypotheses uh, earlier uh, that these effects can take place. Uh, effectively, there was a, this was the first paper that linked a bank liquidity shock to you know, consumer credit cards specifically because we had the data available for it. Now, the, the key challenge uh, that people have is that when you study credit card lending from uh, traditional sources of data, uh, it's very hard to, different, uh, to disentangle supply and demand effects. Um, now, in our study, the data advantage that we had was that uh, we focused on individuals that had multiple credit cards. Uh, so specifically what that does is we study one individual that has multiple credit cards where these cards are issued by banks that are differently exposed to the funding shock. Now, what that helps us do is it helps us isolate credit demand. Specifically, you know, since the consumer is held fixed, uh, we are able to uh, completely identify a supply effect from the bank's perspective and isolate it perfectly to this liquidity shock or, uh, or better than we could have uh, you know, using traditional data sources. So 
from the CFPB's perspective, uh, they were very excited to see these results, mainly because they got a quantification of some of these hypotheses that they had come to. Now, they expected maybe some of these findings, uh, but it was still good to see how a dollar reduction in limits translated into a dollar change in balances and how that, you know, how that relationship held across different consumer segments uh, you know, along the credit score spectrum or the credit utilization ratio spectrum. This is all very fascinating application of uh, economics theory to the real world. It's very interesting. So another area that you study uh, regarding household finance is not just the intersection of household finance and the banking system, but also household finance and fintech. So tell us a little bit more about that and the places where you see machine learning uh, being able to help consumers. In particular, tell us about your paper, Impact of Marketplace Lending on Consumers' Future Borrowing Capacities and Borrowing Outcomes. What did you learn about that and what modeling techniques did you use? Yes. Um, so this paper was broadly motivated by the rise of several fintech disruptors including marketplace lending platforms in consumer credit markets. Now, these fintech platforms, they compete with banks in providing credit to consumers. The goal of these fintech platforms is to necessarily use alternative data, uh, basically data that's not used by traditional banking models uh, in making their credit decisions. Moreover, these platforms also publish the repayment histories of their borrowers and then they use this information in future lending decisions. And the idea is that by publishing this repayment history, they can potentially discipline borrowers. Now, these special aspects of fintech platforms could potentially challenge the traditional banking model and affect how consumers access credit. Now, in this paper, what we try to do is we try to compare how borrowing from fintech platforms versus traditional banks impacts consumers' credit scores and their default propensities. My co-authors and I interpret these effects in terms of the fintech platform's ability to reduce uh, information frictions between lenders and borrowers. As an example, um, if fintech lenders are better able to screen, that is, identify um, identify good quality borrowers and discipline their borrowers compared to banks, then fintech borrowers should have fewer defaults and higher credit scores compared to observably similar bank borrowers. Now, obviously, to do this comparison, uh, we need to have some sort of matching strategy. The modeling technique that we used was a K-nearest neighbor matching approach where we match each fintech platform borrower to a traditional bank borrower. The match was actually pretty thorough in the sense that it was created such that both types of borrowers have identical credit and income profiles. Moreover, the borrowers were selected such that they reside in the same five-digit zip code. And we also conditioned on the loan product that they originate. We made sure that both types of borrowers originate the same loan product, which is an unsecured installment loan, and that this loan product was originated in the same month for both types of borrowers. What we ended up finding is that despite being identical in the months leading up to the origination of their respective loans, fintech borrowers had lower credit scores and higher default propensities in the long run compared to bank borrowers. And as a result, our results 
seem to indicate that fintech platforms are less able to mitigate information frictions with respect to their borrowers than traditional banks. Very interesting. And in this case, it seems like the machine learning technique you used was a fairly straightforward clustering technique to try to bring your subjects closely in line for each particular um, banks and the fintech lenders, correct? Yes, uh, it was just a, a straightforward K-nearest neighbor matching uh, approach. It's fairly standard practice. Um, but the good thing that we were able to do with this, uh, with this approach was that we were able to match uh, consumers not just on levels, which is um, you know, at, at a specific point in time, but also on trends. Basically, um, you know, the MPL borrower was matched to the bank borrower uh, such that they both had similar trends in credit scores. If the MPL borrower was experiencing increasing credit scores in the month leading up to MPL loan origination, if the fintech borrower was experiencing um, increasing credit scores in the month leading up to fintech loan origination, then the bank borrower that was matched to this fintech borrower had a similar trend as well. Um, and that matching approach uh, provides a significant upgrade over some of the existing techniques that you know uh, that were uh, observed in the existing literature. I may be asking you to speculate here, but how could a marketplace lender use information such as this to improve their their lending? That's a difficult question to answer. Um, specifically, it kind of depends on the on the loan product that they are specializing in but i think the one thing that the fintech platform should maybe understand is that what our paper seems to suggest is that there is a selection of higher risk borrowers onto such fintech platforms that is not captured on an observable dimension Um, and the reason i can say that tentatively is because our matching technique was identifying fintech borrowers that were identical to bank borrowers on observable terms. So the matching can only take place on observable characteristics, but there's something unobservable um, that results in fintech borrowers defaulting more. And though that could occur uh, because there is a selection uh, of higher risk borrowers onto fintech platforms or something about the fintech platforms loan product itself encourages such borrowers to default more or causes them to default more. It's just something that fintech platforms can at best be aware of when they supply credit to consumers. So there may be some sort of latent variable that hasn't been discovered yet that could impact uh, the kinds of people who are selected by fintech platforms. I think that's the best way to put it, yes, uh, that there is probably some kind of uh, latent, unobservable variable that either causes... Um, borrowers to approach fintech platforms with the intention of accessing credit through fintech sources, or there's some component of the fintech loan itself um, that results in fintech borrowers um, defaulting more. And it's it's very hard to disentangle these two effects, but the the paper that we have uh, kind of sheds light and provides suggestive evidence along along both dimensions and both problems may be at play here. So it sounds like this is an area that's wide open for a lot more research. Um, Exactly. I think uh, there is a lot more work um, to be done in nailing down uh, specifically what 
it is exactly that causes uh, fintech borrowers to, to default more? Is it really the borrowers themselves or is it something about the product that's being offered? Uh, but that will require a, a substantially different type of data um, and an ability to, to differentiate between uh, these two effects, which, you know, which is obviously an interesting avenue uh, for other researchers to pursue. So having covered some of these more serious topics, let's turn to something a little more fun now. Uh, you have a very interesting uh, research. You have very interesting research you did on buzzwords, innovations, and quarterly earnings calls. And you applied machine learning to this research, right? Yes, uh, that's actually right. Uh, in this paper, my co-authors and I apply some machine learning techniques to finance research. This is the first for me. So specifically, what my co-authors and I study is that whether the discussion of emerging technologies by firms' management in their earnings conference calls conveys credible information to investors. Now, as such, these emerging technologies are characterized by the novelty of both their origin as well as, the, as, the, as their applications. Emerging technologies are also characterized by their relatively fast growth um, as well as their potential to maybe exert considerable impact on business and society. The key issue here, though, is that this impact is expected to be experienced not immediately, but in the nebulous future. And as a result, emerging technologies also entail significant uncertainty. So as such, you know, the existing literature is unclear about how the stock market would possibly respond to firms' discussion of emerging technologies. Now, as an example, there was actually one paper that was published um, in the early 2000s that found that during the dot-com era, companies that changed their corporate names to internet-related dot-com names experienced an immediate stock price reaction, uh, immediate positive stock price reaction. Now, this reaction was positive even if the firm itself had no specific focus on technology or anything to do with the internet broadly. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's existing research that also finds that as such, the stock market tends to be quite slow when it comes to recognizing the benefits of any kind of R&D investments that firms may undertake. You know, because of this uncertainty and uh, how the stock market could really respond to emerging technologies, um, we started exploring this research question. But before we can actually analyze how the stock market could respond to the, to the discussion of emerging technologies, the main challenge that we face is that of identifying these emerging technology phrases themselves. Uh, and now that happens because by definition, emerging technologies are continuously evolving over time. Moreover, the scientific or technical jargon of emerging technologies may not actually be used word for word by firms' executives or the business press, which may instead rely on some shorthand nicknames or synonyms. Uh, for example, you know, you have uh, electronic paper, which is the official emerging technology, but people call it e-paper. Um, and as a result, you know, we need to be agnostic uh, when it comes to identifying these phrases. Now, we mitigate these concerns by using a newly developed language model, which is the bi-directional encoder representations from transformers, or BERT. Uh, using this language model, we create a dictionary of emerging technology buzzwords. 
And importantly, this dictionary will identify not just the emerging technologies as they materialize over time, but it's holistic in the sense that it contains both the jargon that's associated with emerging technologies as well uh, as, well as their common uh, everyday, uh, everyday nicknames and synonyms. Now, using this dictionary, uh, we analyze the stock market response to the discussion of emerging technology phrases. Uh, we find that firms' discussion of emerging technologies does generate an immediate stock price reaction. However, we find that this effect, or our, our evidence suggests that this effect appears to be rational because such firms actually uh, that mention emerging technologies in their earnings conference calls subsequently increase their R&D investments and they have patents granted in the three-year window following the discussion of, uh, of these emerging technologies where the, the patents that are granted to these firms are related to the specific technology that they mention in their earnings conference call. Overall, our results seem to suggest that the discussion of emerging technologies in earnings calls is not just hype, but it's something that conveys uh, credible information to investors. So you all will have to excuse me while I go off and write my own AI algorithm to boost my stock portfolio based on your research then. Yes. Uh, so this result was a little surprising. Um, the reason for that was we had this earlier paper where we, which I just talked about that you know, there is a positive uh, price response when firms associate themselves with the latest trends. Um, in the case of the 2000s, it was firms changing their names to dot-com related names. But that paper finds that it was maybe not a rational response because all firms experienced that positive response, even though their business had nothing to do with, uh, with the internet broadly. But in our case, we find that firms actually do go. In our case, we find that firms that mention emerging technologies will uh, actually go and innovate in, in relevant technology domains. So in the case of you, your AI specifically, it'll be great, I think, for, for short-term trading strategies. Highly risky, but I think we have now two papers that seem to suggest that you will generate positive returns in the short term. I think it goes without saying that we are not financial advisors, so don't base any stock picks on what we are telling you. Yep, that's right. <laughs> but this sounds like a very fascinating application of emerging technologies in and of itself with natural language processing. Yep, uh, we are currently uh, revising the draft of this paper, uh, hoping to present it at conferences soon. Well, I'd look forward to getting a copy of that. That would be very interesting. So, Nikhil, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your rich knowledge with us. If our listeners are interested in more information, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on uh, the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business's uh, directory. I'm an assistant professor in finance there, so my information, my contact information, my email address uh, is all up on the Terry College of Business's website. Well, thanks again for joining us today. If you haven't yet, I invite you to listen to another episode I recorded with Dr. Jennifer Priestley from Kennesaw State University. We talked about the different disciplines within data science and how university programs collaborate with businesses to build better data scientists. If you would like to be notified of future episodes, hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Data Dialogues from Equifax. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified of future episodes and leave us a review. 
To keep our legal team happy, we'd like to remind you that nothing in this podcast is legal advice, and we recommend to always consult with your own legal representative to ensure your data use is handled properly. Also, the opinions and views expressed in the podcast are not intended as hard facts and advice. They're also not necessarily the views of Equifax.